Amen. Praise God for Jesus Christ. So I'm thrilled to be here again. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, Christmas, the tender mercy of God. Christmas, the tender mercy of God. Let me pray for us one more time and we'll um, get going. Lord Jesus, uh, once again, Lord, we're just humbled to be here this morning and to think about uh, the greatest birth that has ever taken place and the significance of that birth, Lord. Um, there's so much meaning and significance and glory in what we celebrate on Christmas, and it's so easy, God, to get lo- to, for it to get lost in uh, the midst of uh, holiday routines and hustle and bustle. God, I just pray that you would help us in a special way this morning. Uh, remember the, glo- the unbelievable glory of Christmas. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Today is Christmas. We celebrate the birth uh, of one of the most, um, of of literally the greatest person who's ever lived. uh, And it's it's also one of the profound, uh, most profound theological moments that ever happened um, in history. As we read a little bit earlier, the birth of Jesus signifies the time when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, in fact, the incarnation of the Son of God, to me, is one of probably the most profound and mind-boggling tr- truths that we believe as Christians because we're literally saying that the infinite God became a human <laughs> for us. And it, it's unbelievable. It's, it's remarkable. And so that's what we celebrate today. And what I want us to look at today is to explore the meaning of Jesus' birth through a, pa- a portion of Scripture that has traditionally been called the Benedictus. Everybody say Benedictus. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. But it's a Latin word, which means blessing. And um, the Benedictus is uh, the prophecy of a man in Luke chapter 1 named Zechariah. Now, if you remember... Uh, an important part of Jesus' story is that Jesus had a forerunner. He had somebody who came before him to prepare his way, to prepare the people of Israel so that they could, uh, you know, be able to grasp the significance of the one who was coming after him. And that forerunner was named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had, uh, his parents were named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, John's mom, Elizabeth, was actually a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. John's father, Zechariah, was a Levite and a priest. And if you remember the story, um, when uh, Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth had no children, they weren't able to conceive, and they were in their old age, and Zechariah finally get, got his chance to, uh, to serve uh, within the temple. Uh, at this point, there were so many priests uh, from the, the line of the family of Aaron that, uh, that um, they cast lots to see who would get to actually serve within the, within the temple itself. Uh, and um, you only got to do it once and, uh, you, and if, if, you, if you got the chance to do it at all. And so Zechariah is an old man at this point and he, he is for the first time getting his opportunity to actually enter within the temple itself as a priest to do the service there on that day. And when he does, an angel appears to him and tells him that he's going to have a child. And if you remember, 
he doesn't believe. He doubts. And because of his doubt, the angel tells him, you will be unable to speak until all the things that I have said to you take place. And so we, we later, when John is finally born, and they ask him what his name should be, and he writes on a tablet, his name is John, the Lord looses his tongue at that point, and he begins to speak. And some of the first words out of his mouth are this prophecy called, that we call the Benedictus, in Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 67. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Zechariah's prophecy and learn some truths about why God sent his son. Why God sent his son. And we're going to learn that it is about Christmas, the tender mercy of God. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. And this is what it says. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he had visited, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The word of God. You may be seated. Okay, so from our text this morning, we're going to see three reasons why God sent his son. God sent his son, first of all, number one, to keep his promises to keep his promises. Number two, God sent his son to deliver us from our enemies, to deliver us from our enemies. And then number three, God sent his son to exercise his saving power, to exercise his saving power. First, we're going to see that God sent his son to keep his promises, to keep his promises. We see this from several pointers from our passage. Uh, in verses 68 and 69, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So there's two things that I want to look at in this portion of Scripture here. The first is it says there in verse 68 uh, that God has visited his people. Now, that, that language sounds strange to us, um, but the, the language of God God's visitation or God's visiting has a rich Old Testament background. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that should sound familiar to you. The idea of God visiting his people is the idea of God drawing near to them in a powerful way, um, oftentimes for salvation and sometimes in, in judgment. But it's the drawing near of God to his people in a powerful way. In fact, the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament the same word is used for the first time in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, 
where at that time, Joseph, who was, you know, one of Jacob's 12 sons and one of the, one of the, one of the brothers, and they sold him into slavery, right? And, and God raised him up and protected him and raised him to the, to the, to the uh, second most powerful place in all of Egypt. And he ended up saving his family by bringing them down into Egypt, right? Well, near the end of Joseph's life, uh, near the end of his life, Joseph actually makes a prophecy. And in Genesis 50, verse 24, it says that Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So what is Joseph talking about? He's talking about divine visitation. That one day, God, Joseph, through the Holy Spirit, is prophesying that God is going to visit the people of Israel to deliver them out of Egypt, okay? And we know that that happened, of course. Eventually, uh, uh, Joseph's word proves true because God raised up a man named Moses. All right, and through Moses, God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. How? Well, as the scripture says, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And God judged the Egyptians through 10 plagues, the last being the, the, uh, uh, the judgment on the firstborn through the Passover. All right, and through the Passover, God commanded the Israelites, telling them that they had to take a spotless lamb and kill it and take the blood and put it on the doorpost of their house and the lintels of their house. And that when the destroyer comes and sees the blood, I'll pass over you in judgment. And that was what? It was God's salvation. It was God's deliverance for the people of Israel. Because at that time, when, uh, when the firstborn was struck down, um, uh, Pharaoh finally let them go out of the land. And the Passover would then, throughout the rest of the the Old Testament would become the, the kind of the climactic salvation event, all right? That when God, any time in the future, would refer to Israel as his people, as his chosen people, it was because I am the Lord your God who delivered you from Egypt. I saved you, so you're mine, so you belong to me. And that becomes the climactic salvation event within the Old Testament. Well, then when you get to the New Testament and you get to Zechariah, okay, he says that uh, a, God is visiting his people once again, right? Um, just like Joseph prophesied that God would visit his people and deliver them, Zechariah is prophesying once again that God in the birth of John and Jesus is visiting his people once again to save them. But this time, in a way greater than that of the Passover. Because Zechariah's own son, John, would grow up to be a man, and he would see Jesus, and he would say, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And to a Jewish mind, that, there's no doubt in what, what John is saying. John is saying that this is God's Lamb, who is God's divine visitation of salvation to deliver us from judgment, to save us from our sin, to save us from our sin. A salvation uh, through judgment, uh, through God slaying his own son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God made a promise and God kept it. God, kept, God sent his son to keep his promises. We also see that Zechariah uh, says there that God raised up a horn for salvation in the house of his servant David. This is actually a reference to Psalm 132, verse 17. 
In Psalm 132, 17, it says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Okay? So David was the greatest, most faithful king that Israel ever had. And because of that, God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, which is a vastly important passage of Scripture. And in there, God promises David that one of his descendants will reign over Israel forever, that his, that his house will remain forever, and that is that basically the, the Davidic line will rule over God's people forever. And this is of vast significance, right, to the Jewish people because they understand that an heir of David is going to come who's going to save them from their enemies, rule over God's people in justice and righteousness, and they'll be able to actually live as free people who belong to God. All right, And so the, the Davidic promise represented basically uh, every Jewish dream come true. And when Zechariah is prophesying about Jesus and says that he is the horn of salvation from the family of David, right? he's saying more than just, uh, than just reminding us of Jesus' family tree. Right? He's speaking of the promise of God. He is saying that the ancient promise of God that God made to David is being fulfilled today in the birth of Jesus. God's promises are drawing near to you. I mean, could you imagine being a Jew living during the time of John the Baptist and Jesus? I mean, you, you would, it, what's remarkable is that so many people who lived during that day, they never grasped the unbelievable significance of the day in which they lived. They lived in one of the greatest times in human history because God was drawing near to them in a way he had never had before. Through his own son. It's amazing. And so God sent his son to fulfill this ancient promise, an heir of David to reign over Israel forever. And Zechariah goes on finally there to refer to yet another promise in verses 72 and 73. He says that Jesus is coming to show the promised, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So, so he, he talks about the Davidic promise, and then he talks about the Abrahamic promise. So you got to go even further back than that. Where God told Abraham, he said, uh, I will bless you and make your name, I will make you, your name great, and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the ancient promise that God is literally going to bless the entire world through a single man, a man named Abraham. Which is why when you get, like you read the Gospel of Matthew, and, the, and the, the Gospel of Matthew is the story of Jesus, and it literally begins with a genealogy. And the first words are uh, uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. Why would he say that? Because he wants a Jewish reader immediately to know that the person he's talking about is of utmost significance because he is the one who fulfills the promise both to Abraham and to David. So this is not just a random child born in a stable. It's the promises of God being fulfilled. Promises made, promises kept. It's about, Christmas is about God's faithfulness to his word. It's about God's commitment to redeem the broken mess of the world. That we might truly live before him as sons and image bearers of God. So number one, God sent his son to keep his promises. Number two, God sent his son to deliver us from our enemies, to deliver us from our enemies. In verse 68, again, 
says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Uh, Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Um, if If you've read through the Bible carefully before, you've probably picked up on this this interesting thread that runs through the scripture. And that is that God saves, the, 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 the story of the Bible is a story of salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. What does that mean? Well, if you're saved, if you're saved, well, what does that mean? It means that you have to be saved from something, right? To be saved but not have anything you needed saving from is meaningless. If God saves you, that means there's something he's saving you from, right? And whatever we need saving from, by definition, is our enemy, all right? Uh, the, the climactic Old Testament salvation event, the Passover, where God saved Israel. Who did he save, him, who did he save them from? The Egyptians. But how did he save them from the Egyptians? By judging the Egyptians, He sent his plagues upon them. And by judging the Egyptians, by judging Israel's enemies, he's delivered them from their enemies. And they are saved. It's salvation through judgment. Many of David's psalms, for example, in the book of Psalms, are are psalms of praise for salvation, which in David's case literally means save from people who are trying to kill him by God's deliverance from his enemies. But what's interesting here is that when Jesus comes, something surprising happens, even disorienting for the Jewish people. And that is that Jesus, their Messiah King, when he came the first time, he did not fulfill all their nationalistic hopes. Jesus Christ did not come to make Israel great again. Jesus Christ came, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ came first, not as a political leader to conquer their enemies, but as a suffering lamb to forgive their sin. And what does that mean? It means that while God's people, humanly speaking, will always face opposition. That's a a clear story throughout Scripture. The people of God will always face opposition because, it's a, because there's a, a war, a spiritual war raging. But nevertheless, God sent his son not to deal with that first, but to deal with the greater problem first, and that is the problem of our sin. That is, humanity's greatest problem is not political, it's not economic, it's spiritual. That's humanity's greatest problem. And Jesus Christ came first to deal with our greatest problem. Paul would say that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in a hyper-political world today that frankly idolizes politics and just kind of acts like if we can get the right people and the right policies in place, we can really make this thing work. That's not how it works. Yes, good politics can make things a little bit better, but it doesn't solve humanity's real problems. Because the humanity's, the reason why we, there's so much brokenness in the world is not, the reason why society's broken is because society is full of broken people. 
And the only solution for the brokenness of the human heart is renewal of the human heart by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to deal with our real problem, the problem that really matters. It's sin. It's our sin that is our greatest problem because it puts us justly under the wrath of God. And it's sin that is our greatest enemy of our soul. And Jesus came to deliver us from that enemy. So our greatest enemy is sin. And then secondly, Paul would go on to say that our enemies in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the the next great enemy after sin is demonic forces. Now, that makes Baptists real nervous to get all jittery and talk about demons. But the amount of things, the, the demonic influence in the world is staggering, even if we don't see it. It's there. The Bible says that the devil is out there like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. That's why... You know, people like, why, you know, why do people get all bent out of shape? Why do people always asking people, oh, come to church, come to church? You know, I don't need church to be a Christian. Look, wolves go after the weak and isolated sheep. If you're going to stray from the flock, all right, and wonder why people want you to come to church, it's because there's, a, there's an enemy out there who's coming after your soul. And we're just lollygagging around, think we're going to be fine. So the devil comes and devour our household, and then we wonder what happened. Why is my life a wreck? Why is, every, why is everything in shambles? Because you, you left the door open for the devil. There's demonic forces at play. Jesus said that he, he came to do what? He came, he came as a strong man to what? To bind. See, he described, in one parable, he described the devil like a strong man. He says, the strong, a, a strong man's house can't be plundered unless a stronger man comes, binds him, and plunders his house. That was in the context of Jesus casting out demons. Jesus was saying, I'm a man stronger than Satan. I've come to bind him and to f- set free his captives. That's what Jesus came to do. You see, the devil means slanderer or accuser. That's what the word means. But Jesus, when he forgives our sin, he does what? He renders Satan powerless because Satan can't accuse you of forgiven sin. Now, your friends may accuse you. Your past may accuse you. Your conscience may accuse you. But the devil can't because in God's eyes, that sin's forgiven. That's what it says in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there was literally like a, a, a record of, of debt, the record of our sin that demanded divine justice and we, that's exactly what we'd be getting, except that Jesus died on the cross to take that piece of paper and tear it to pieces. So that no record of debt stands against those who belong to him. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so Jesus came in the most significant way to deliver us from our enemies, our greatest enemies, sin 
and the devil. And it's true that Jesus Christ will come again one day. You know there will be two Christmases? There'll be the first Christmas Jesus came as a baby. But dear friends, you have to know the second Christmas is going to be different. When Jesus comes back the second time, he's not going to come as a baby in a manger. He's going to come as a rider on a horse. And a sword is going to come out of his mouth to strike down the nations. He came the first time to forgive the sin of the world. He's going to come the second time to judge the sin of the world. So what is today? Today is what the Bible calls the time of patience. It's the time of grace. It's the time of mercy. It's the time that Jesus has withheld his, his look, gee, God sees everything going on in the world right now, and it's a mess. And, and people wonder, well, why does God just allow all this to happen? Because he's given people time to repent. That's why. But one day the time of mercy will be up. But until that day's come, but until that day comes, though, it's not too late. We can turn from our sin. We can trust in Christ. We can embrace this one, the Savior who came to deliver us from our sin, to deliver us from Satan. We can be forgiven of our sin. We can be brought into the eternal family so that when he does return, it won't be for us. It won't be for judgment. It'll be for mercy. It'll be for glory. It'll be, it'll be uh, for, for resurrection life and to be appointed in the place that he has for us in, in his eternal kingdom to reign with him forever. It'll be a glorious thing. But Jesus Christ came the first time, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And that's what we celebrate on Christmas. Jesus has conquered. Jesus is the king. You know, right before Jesus died, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be fighting for me, but my kingdom is not of this world. What is Jesus saying? Yes, he's a king. Just he's not the king that, He's not the king that the world expected. But he is the king. As the prophet Isaiah said about 2,700 years ago, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So God sent his son to keep his promises, to deliver us from our enemies, and finally number three, God sent his son to exercise his saving power. To exercise his saving power. Again, in verse 69, it says that he raised up a horn of salvation for us. A horn, again, that's kind of weird. A horn uh, in the ancient Near East, right, is a symbol of power. Um, you know, the, the strongest animals that they had close contact with were large animals with big horns, like oxen, right? And so the horn was a, a term uh, for power. And so when it says that he has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David, it means he's raised up a strong one, a mighty one, one of power to bring salvation to his people. The horn represented strength, power, pushing out, pushing over, trampling over their enemies. God exercised his saving power at Christmas by, ri by raising up a powerful horn of salvation. Now, was Jesus powerful? Yes. He had power over disease. That's pretty powerful. He had power over demons. He had power 
over the wind and the sea. He had power over death itself. God gave us the all-powerful one to save us on Christmas. In verse 68, it says that the saving power was power of redemption. It was redemption. Redemption is a very loaded word in the Bible. And it means a purchase or a payment. We were sold into slavery in our sin. Jesus redeemed us. He bought us. He purchased us at the cost of his own blood to deliver us from the penalty of our sin. That's redemption. And it says there that John, his son, would come, in verse 77, John, his son, would come to prepare the way for the Messiah by doing what? By giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sin. And so God's saving power, specifically as we've talked about, is saving power not from the Romans, which is what most Jews wanted, but it was salvation from their sin is what God was giving them. That's why God let Zechariah and Elizabeth conceive in their old age. That's why God let Mary conceive as a virgin. To save us from our sin. And all this is because, in verse 78, it's because of the tender mercy of our God. Um, The the tender mercy of God literally is uh, bowels of mercy. Um, That doesn't translate too well most of the time. My, My bowels are feeling very merciful for you right now at the moment. But in the ancient Near East, right, the, they, they located the, the emotions, the tender affections of people in the, you know, we refer to the heart, but they refer to the bowels. So it just, it is what it is. But the bowels of mercy, all right? But, it, but what it means is it's where they located the affections. And, and so it, it could, and so you know, it could mean something like the affections of mercy, the warm feelings of mercy that God had towards his people. It's, 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 it's powerful language. And what Zechariah is saying is that God, in the salvation of his people, he's doing it. He's doing it because he has mercy for his people. And not just any kind of mercy. He has tender mercy. He has warm, but I hope our hearts are warm and full of the tender mercy of God. As we close this morning, I just want to extend an invitation to everyone in this room. What a great time to thank God for his tender mercy. And maybe, maybe there's someone in this room this morning who has yet to truly experience the tender mercy of God in your life. What a better time than to come to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of worshiping you on Christmas today. Thank you for the brothers and sisters and their families that you have brought here today. Thank you for your tender mercy, Lord, which overflows to us through the giving of your own son. Thank you, Lord, for Christmas. Lord, bless today as we go and Fellowship with family. Lord, family's a gift from you. Food's a gift from you. A warm home is a gift from you. You have lavished gift upon gift. The greatest gift being forgiveness of sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate you today. 
And we look to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song of response. The altar belongs to you. If you have something uh, you'd like prayer for, I'd love to pray with you here. However the Lord has spoken, please respond. If everyone would stand. Miss Wanda, if you'll just uh, roll us off that first chord right there. We're going to sing a cappella this morning. Yeah. Silent night. Oh. Uh-huh.